Hello, everyone. Welcome to another special episode of Always Already After Dark. This is James with you, and you just heard Emily there. Oh, that was my Twilight uh, Twilight Zone <laughs> soundtrack contribution. Things are getting and eerie who, after dark. Who, who else is here with us in the evening John's, twilight? <laughs> John, yeah, it actually is evening twilight here because I'm an hour behind you all, temporality-wise. Yeah, so, so I think uh, I'm, a, I'm a little too late for Twilight here on the East Coast, but... Yeah, plus Maybe Twilight it should be nice. the subject. Nice. Maybe Twilight the books and movies should be the subject for our After Dark special segment. I gotta tell you, could not make it through the first chapter of the first Twilight book, but I loved the movie. <laughs> oh, so, so much sexual I... tension. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I read zero of the books, but I think I watched like one and a half of the movies. That sounds about right. So I didn't read any of the books, and I didn't see movies except for about 10 minutes of, I guess it was the first one, but like it was about three weeks ago, and I was with my sister, and uh, I had thoughts on it, but I I was like, I'm only popping in for like five minutes, and so I didn't want to be like the critical theory person in the corner of the room, just shouting Why not? So I didn't. Why not? About it, but why not, right? Not so maybe if we talk about Twilight, I'll <laughs> throw in my two cents to the side. But I think that's the perfect situation. <laughs> Which five minutes did you see? What was happening? <laughs> what were they? I think he like was convincing the Kristen Stewart character to like and, like trust him to go flying. Like he took her flying. Oh wow! They were like up above, like canopy of the pack northwest oh yeah and, and it you was totally just like ripped really that off from pretty. aladdin <laughs> you trust this is very interesting colonial gesture i know of a colonial object i know what was your five minute like critical theory critique james oh okay so like there was something about the it's so the vampire right like he was dazzlingly sparkly like sparklingly pale and white in the in the light mm-hmm. and i was just like there's something about like the abrasiveness of how dazzling and bright their pale white skin was in this like very grayed out bluish grayish background of like trying to make it look like a rainy day in you know the fall or the winter in the pack northwest but it just was like everything was really dim in the light and then of course here are these like two like white 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 characters in this kind of like overexposed look or something and then like he's also sparkling and dazzlingly white right and i'm just looking at it like don't don't be that person who just immediately sees white and sparkles and it's just like why is he sparkling white but in my no, i just wanted to know like why is he sparkling white yeah you know it's like are there black characters in this movie or you know i know like there's the one Latino character, but or I think he's Native American Latino. I'm not sure, but other than that, and I he's a werewolf. Interesting. Interestingly, right? And isn't it right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could. Yeah. There's an interesting, like I don't know, like the race animalization. Maybe Shadi could come back on, and we can. Did no, you I ever think, watch I think the True solution Blood? is we all need to watch Twilight and then do always already podcast after dark, like for real on Twilight. I'm dancing. Emily seems excited by this idea. The movie is not meant to be a comedy, but I find it hilarious. <laughs> I, like, a, just a riot. Good time, good laughs all around. 
Is yeah. there any kind of like double message of like what the vampires are supposed to represent in the same way that um like the Sookie Stackhouse novels um that became the True what Blood. was that? True Blood. True Blood mm-hmm. on HBO, right? And like there was that like the vampire is the figure of the homosexual, right? And like it was a like becoming a very interesting social commentary. There is well, nothing the interesting in Twilight okay. <laughs> at all. So no, it's like, about like social commentary. it's about like girls not having sex before they're married. <laughs> well, because <laughs> Stephanie Meyer is like a like uh, like observant Mormon, right? I, I think really. So, yeah. I oh. mean, it, it's like all about. You know, that dazzling whiteness now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like purity and chastity exactly. yeah. and yeah. dazzling whiteness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which things that have never been linked historically together ever, no. James, did you read those Sucky Sackhouse novels? I didn't. No, I didn't. But I love True Blood. And then new, like, off of, like, forums on web forums. I took, I'm really putting myself out here now. I lived on True Blood <laughs> Forums back in the day, <laughs> and, and, and and so I, I double meaning for any. <laughs> I want to read the novels though. I read all thirteen of them in like two weeks, three summers ago, when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation proposal. You just that said, you just maybe gave me an idea though that like they're probably really easy light summer reading. So mm-hmm. yeah, and they're like a dollar on Kindle. Oh, even better. Hashtag plug. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we, are we are we are we now getting are we getting the sponsor money? I to wish <laughs> to book stuff. Should, um, all the books that we probably had people buy through Amazon as a result of listening to our podcast over mm-hmm. the years. Amazon owes or us through your back. local independent <laughs> bookstore. Yeah, or that maybe something like about Powell's books in Portland, where I'm going to be moving. Yeah, we're getting really. This is after dark. We're spiraling out. But the other thing that I was watching... It's been five, five whole minutes. minutes. of Twilight for, <laughs> I know. I was just curious about the canopy and the look of the Pac Northwest in that movie, too. So mm, I was yes. just like, I'm on my way to Portland. I don't know if listeners know this. So Have we, yeah, have we announced this on the podcast, James? Probably not. Um, well, you should, you should take the time. And okay. The podcast uh, so in a week from tomorrow, I will be packing up and moving from Richmond, Virginia to Portland, Oregon, uh, to start a fellowship at Lewis and Clark College in the history department through the Consortium for Faculty Diversity Dissertation Completion Fellowship. So I'll be writing and teaching uh, African-American history seminar this fall. So interesting, uh, I have some thoughts about the discipline of history that's gonna come up maybe a little bit later in our mm-hmm. conversation. Because of this... About uh, Twilight? You know, it's all... It's the kaleidoscope. The kaleidoscopic, like, arabesque in my mind. <laughs> Twilight and Hegel and history and psychoanalysis and all this is like... Well... It's all related, so... I hope we get a image. little bit of James's extended Snapchat story rant from yesterday. <laughs> which I watched... I missed it. With, with great interest. Is it but. still there? <laughs> Oh, it's probably over 24 hours now. I think no. it's probably gone. I was, I it was, it was light outside see. yesterday when you yeah. were doing that. Yeah, I had a, it was a, I had to vent out about the, the methodologies and framework of the discipline of history. And what better place to do that to than the imaginary, but not always imaginary audience through Snapchat. But, you know, when you're talking to no one yet, 
You have no idea. So it's easy to just like say whatever you want to <laughs> when there's like actually not a person there and then just kind of let it float in the ether for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, we're plugging Snapchat and Kindle. <laughs> Isn't Snapchat worth hours. like billions and billions of dollars? <laughs> they can throw some our way. Part of the problem. Part of the problem. So, John, you've convened. <laughs> you've convened an always already after dark episode. There was right. some, some coherence to this. That so, what's what's the coherent thread that has brought us here? Psychoanalysis. So yeah, so a couple of things. Like first of all, so in our last episode, we talked about psychoanalysis some, and we haven't really done that much on the podcast. Uh, somewhat separately from that, but also after that, James, you have mentioned a couple of times that, like, you think we need to, like, turn back to psychoanalysis in some ways. Um, and then there's this article <laughs> that came out a couple of days ago that is kind of the focus of the discussion, and second to Twilight, or maybe tertiary to Twilight, and that is <clears throat> by Emmett Renson, The Blathering Superego at the End of History, which was in the LA Review of Books a few days ago. And it's an article that's like a critique of, and even in describing it, I'm going to, it'll get into some questions that I think we all have about it. But it's kind of a critique of, I don't know, like contemporary technocratic or managerial liberalism in the U.S., but maybe also a critique of like liberalism writ large is like a, a hundred year centuries long project in kind mm-hmm. of the lackluster response to Trump and the lacklusterness of the Democratic Party. And so it kind of starts out with a general sort of critique of these things. And then about halfway through, Renson turns to Freud and uses, as he says, uh, the superego is a quote unquote metaphor to break down contemporary liberalism. So maybe we can start there. So the piece is online. It's like a relatively short-ish read. Um, so maybe the listeners, we want to suggest that they go read it first and then come back. Or don't. Sierra's talking about um, <laughs> I mean, you don't need to actually know what we're talking about. <laughs> this is actually, no one actually right? reads the things no, they talk no. about. <laughs> We just critique from the corner. Like um, so I don't know. So what did you two What's make? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so one, uh, one of us. I feel like uh, I'm floating around in one of my lower consciousness chambers or something right now. It's like I'm not one of, like one of us. Straight um, up id. <laughs> <laughs> How literally do you think, like, Renson intends us to take the psychoanalytic account or psychoanalysis itself? Uh, Well, I think the stakes are different depending on to what extent we consider it a metaphor, right? Because if it's like, okay, so if the, the main thesis of this piece is that contemporary liberalism's superego has failed has like stopped fulfilling the purpose of a superego like what i don't know how would we say that in a kind of the like bite size i oh that's interesting i read it as saying that like the superego has like grown out of control and like that's all that liberalism is anymore is all superego or- or, oh. or maybe, or maybe, like, and so this is a question I have: is like, is this a recent development in liberalism that Renson is talking about, 
Or has liberalism always been mostly or entirely super ego? See, but, okay, in this... so maybe let me let me read a quote from the a couple quotes from the piece to kind of situate it maybe for the audience a bit. So he writes, um, the superego is a metaphor for the collective operation of the liberal world order. There's a great deal of much needed light on what we are observing in the wake of the 2016 election. Um, sorry, but if the world is, as it ought to be already, and the essential task is to maintain it, that is to police the circumscribed boundaries, the permissible behavior and ideas, then those tasked with the maintenance must conceive of themselves as acting above politics itself. They become a superego beyond the libidinal whims of any faction and dedicated not to some alternative vision of the world, but to resisting all impulses toward alternatives. So I I think that a question you asked earlier about whether this is about like American liberalism and its contemporary incarnations or about the pro the centuries long project of liberalism as a world order, um, that there's a little bit of slippage actually between those things in the, in the mm-hmm. article, which makes it harder to see like whether the metaphor, whether it's a metaphor or whether it's, um, an, an actual psychoanalytic account of how we got to where we are now. And then like what the stakes are of that I think kind of change depending on which way you read it mm-hmm. and which way, um, like which thing is actually the stuff of the superego? Like, is it, is it liberalism as a global thing that, you know, <clears throat> asserts itself coercively and violently in some ways and like subconsciously and unconsciously in others, or is it like the people who are the agents of liberalism and it's, and it's um, like depoliticization in a way, like who's, who are the, the, the subjects of the superego in this case, I think changes the kind of like what we mm. learn, what we learn about it or from it, from a psychoanalytic account of, of how we got here. So the way I think that's, um, yeah, I think you're right, Emily, in that, like, who the actual subjects are is it slips between a kind of, like, national kind of local in this national kind of reading and then, like, a kind of more broader global sweep of liberalism. And I was reading it, I think, more in the global sense um, in that if liberalism is the superego that I think at some point in the article, he, the the author talks about how the id comes from the right and the far right and the far left right now, right? Like that, that like Bernie Sanders and like the like that level of the left and beyond, even more radical, is also a id kind of drive that the super ego of liberalism today would like clamp down on in the same way that it clamps down or wants to clamp down on the kind of alt right fringe drives of the id as well and so but like that kind of talked to me like it, it was right because if this is like if it's more if it's not just a metaphor like if we're really going to try to use the psychoanalysis and it seems like the the thought right that, okay I mentioned before, and so he i'm just going to read this one it's at the beginning the like the, the bit he has like sections of <clears throat> it's broken down in the sections of this article so the one of the paragraphs in the first section says, it was all going so well just a moment ago. And maybe this is the first paragraph or second paragraph. Um, It was all going so well just a moment Mm -hmm. ago. History was over. 
The technocratic order was globalizing the world. People were becoming accustomed to the permanent triumph of a slightly kinder exploitation. And so that, that phrase, history was over, made me think immediately of Arthur Danto, who's an art critic, an art historian, who has this end of art thesis that he develops out of Hegel to read that in the 1960s, art ended. And if you want to follow that same kind of thought in Hegelian development and like history's telos forward, like the modern, by Hegel's own account, I would say did end in around, around 1960 or so. And whether that's history, whether that's art, all of those discourses are, they crash in on at the same point for Hegel in that all of this is supposed to be the development of consciousness, like right, self-actualization through time that culminates in the state at the end of time. And everything's rationalized and we don't need art anymore to help us like point from metaphors to the kind of rational ideas of philosophy and criticism. We can just go right there. And so like the end of art and the end of history, the end of politics, all those things are very Hegelian. And they're also very Freudian in a kind of, if Hegel's master-slave dialectic is really an account of consciousness that could be described, that could map onto a child's consciousness development, like a baby that wants to master everything around it. And that's how children learn that they're not the same as everything else around them, right? Like this this kind of development, this this the way Freud's psychoanalytic stages break down, kind of map onto a, a Hegelian uh, dialectical consciousness development as well. And I think Freud was Hegelian, you know, in at least breaking down time and development and consciousness. And so in that case, it seemed like an account to me of this entire modern age, right? Or the epistem of modernity that was like, we're progressing through time, through politics. And then like, we reached the end of that because in that regard, like in a very like a local application, as he talks about like Hillary and company represented not a vision for the future at all. She had no future plans. It was just the, I'm the most prepared, I'm the most skilled and I'm the most, I'm the smartest but there was no future vision anymore, right? It was just kind of a maintenance of like where we are right now. Like we've already arrived at the end of everything. We just need to implement all the knowledge that we've accumulated. Thank you, modernity. We're enlightened now, right? So that's how I've been reading it. Um, and that's a critique, I think, of history and psychoanalysis, or it's, it's an interesting read between them both because I don't see them as necessarily pointing us in the right direction or the wrong direction, it, you know, Danto was using Hegel to kind of argue against that whole linear telos. And so that's why I say maybe we need to think about psychoanalysis again in interesting new ways or something. Cause so yeah, so let ahead. me ask you a question. So is this, is what, what's at stake here? The superego of liberalism, like the superego that belongs to liberalism as a, a system and ethos or whatever, or is it that liberalism is the superego of the end of history. And so, like, do you know what I mean by that question? Like, which way is liberalism, like, you know, and this is a obviously simplified way to think about it, but, like, is liberalism the cause or the effect, basically? This is, yeah, this is a really good question and something I was thinking about a ton because I I read Renson as more using, and again, like we've also taken the Freud thing very, very literally. And I think that like 
that's maybe a misreading of what Renson is trying to do. But to keep going in that direction. Or a, um, pu- a pushing in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it, yeah. But, but, like, but that's the thing is that I had the same tendency to like just keep going with the mm-hmm. psychoanalysis and like raise it to a different level and more intense level of, of seriousness. Or not seriousness, but literalness or something than, than he did. Well, that's not, but, he but, says... but like to answer the question that you posed, Emily, um, I think there, I think it'd be something different if we said that I think he's more saying that liberalism is like the superego of our time or something mm-hmm. like that. And I don't think he's doing like, what is the superego id ego of liberalism itself, which would be a different, interesting project that I kept thinking uh. about while this piece and like somewhere in there is that I think like the id of liberalism is something like empire or something like that. Mm. Um, is what I put into like the age. We're both like, yeah. What? But, and so then it's the, like, and so then what that thought pushed me to was I wonder if Renson thinks that liberalism or, or liberalism as superego thinks that Trump is an anomaly or like a continuation. Oh. In the same way that, again, like there's a, and this is part of maybe like we're taking it too literally. Um, like, how far back should we read the liberalism, the superego? Has liberalism always already been like the super mm. modernity? Or in like relation to the points you are making, James, is there something about like a dialectical movement that brings us to a right. situation in which liberalism functions qua superego? Okay, let me just and let you you chew on that but just um the the superego in a freudian psychoanalytic model the superego is a historic formation in that the superego emerges in time and develops over time and so the superego should ideally right be respondent and be like plastic or something you know like so so that that's the other question of just like if liberalism has become the superego, then is has liberal like if liberalism's always been the superego of modernity, then like has it ever matured, or has it always been matured from on arrival, or, or again are we beating the psychoanalytic course right. too far there? But he says this idea of history being over like three other times in this um, piece too, which is like it, it kept coming back up again, and so like putting this super ego liberal problem as also time like he so in section three he says and then right after the line you quoted john super ego as a metaphor for the collective operation of the liberal world order Mm -hmm. then the next sentence when history is meant to be over and a single political faction begins to conceive of itself as the permanent manager of a static world then that faction ceases to be political in the ordinary sense so politics and history He's putting them together there, right? That the kind of movement of politics is the movement of history. history yeah. very Hegelian. And that history ends, politics ends too. You're no longer political if you're just managing. So that's one thing. And then he says in section five, but a superego can only do one thing, this liberal superego. Um, correct. And so it says, no, you, right? And this is in the dialogue. While its enemies struggle and carry on. Can a super, uh, um, so, okay, that was, hold on. That's not him. That's my quote. That's my note. 
He says, but what is abnormal is not any particular political state. It is the accelerating collapse of the superego's capacity to regulate the behavior of the body politic. It is the realization that history is not over and that nothing, not the temporary restoration of the Democratic Party to power or the defeat of every fascist in Europe or the transformation of the United States, young socialists into eager, not in my backyard liberals will ever make it stop. So that the realization that he says the election showed us was that history is not over. Right. So this is, that it, so that's interesting, I think, that, like the time problem that he introduces here. But this is what I was trying to think from the beginning. Like, obviously, he's trying to say something bad about liberalism, right? That there's like something that's not working. The first line is liberalism is broken or something like that, right? <coughs> but so then to say that liberalism or that the superego of our time is liberalism is, is, is to say to an extent, I think, right. That like liberalism is not making good on its, it's like not making good on its, uh, assumption of the role of superego, right. It's become the superego, but it uh, also isn't actually fulfilling the role of superego in the way that James is talking about it in, in it's like plasticity and it's like, um, maturation or whatever like image we want to use for it right that it's like done this weird thing where it's like <clears throat> assume the role of superego but no longer fulfills fulfills the function of superego or something i don't know right yeah i mean so renson writes this is um towards the end of i think the third section uh the end of history suggests a perfectly healthy mind Thus, any attempt to alter the situation is dangerous. But the trouble with superegos super is that once they have taken on this role, they cannot cease to perform it. When the id can be kept in control, all is well. But when it can't, then the result is not the superego's surrender. It is repetitious, manic dysfunction. It becomes the blathering superego at the end of history. And thus, for him, like the Democratic Party or contemporary American liberalism becomes this repetitious, manic, dysfunctional, blathering superego. Here, here. Which I, which I think, which I think is, cons I think is consistent with the point you were just making, Emily. I'm nodding. Sorry. Also, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's also he. So okay, one of the other, I guess, pieces of his argument is that. Um, this is in the second section. He says, if liberals became masters of the world due to their superior respect for facts, then education, not redistribution, was the only hope for the dispossessed. If liberals believed in climate change because scientists told them they should, then the trouble was not the metastatic excesses of capital, but the failure of reactionaries to bow to empirical consensus. And then he goes on to say um, that Hillary Clinton was... And I, I'm always careful with these Hillary when we talk about Hillary just because of the embedded misogyny in the way people talk about her. But he said that Hillary Clinton was the most qualified candidate in history, full stop. The Clinton campaign was technocratic liberalism incarnate. And I think and then he talks he also talks about like the problem of Democrats today thinking that fact checking Donald Trump is somehow the antidote to this kind of post-truth, uh, fake news in air quotes all around. I'm using this all around. I don't know mm. what's fake or real anymore now. And that's kind of the problem that he points the, out. We were never real. Nothing was ever real, right? And so I I just think, again, though, like in pointing this all, you know, and kind of wrapping it up in the, the figure of like what Hegelian politics promised, <laughs> that like that, the knowledge exchange, right? So like 
in a kind of socialist Marxist understanding, like redistribution and power and material, you know, material resources would be a kind of political strategy. But that he says liberals used education, not redistribution, because they just, you know, it's this idea that like it's facts and it's empiricism and it's knowledge and science. And so we don't need to worry about power and, you know, and material redistribution. We just need to worry about education and like, you know, so that idea that like educating someone can kind of edify them or like self-improve them or like through knowledge and learning, we self-improve until we arrive at self-consciousness, right? The end of learning is the end of history, is the end of politics, is the end of all these things. And so that other problem of liberalism that like, it's just a, they are the people today who are out there trying to hold on to objectivity and truth and facts as if that's going to save us again. But that's been the Enlightenment project from the beginning. So maybe, you know, in that regard. That's my life. That's what made me yeah. think of Emily in your research. It swings back to this much bigger question, I guess, of like, what, like, how, I guess, do people come to knowledge or like, how do you raise consciousness or something? Like, it's a deep question, but he's, he's pointing at it sort of, you know, and I don't know if he wants to go that into the nitty, nitty gritty with the psychoanalysis, but I think psychoanalysis as a door opens up all these kinds of questions because the whole point of, again, right, like, the, the psychoanalytic superego development and all that is like the child that learns by the time they're 12 years old to finally be a kind of rationally acting member of society. Right. And mm-hmm. then, and that mm-hmm. whole, that's a, that process could be described as history. That process can be described as education and learning. You know, there's lots of ways to talk about how discipline become discipline. Right. You know, right. So, yeah, the biopolitical way, as, you know, we can talk about it that way, right? And so, well, there's a lot of Foucault in this piece. It's never, never <laughs> by name, but like, there's a ton of Foucault everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everywhere. And okay, the I mean, of- so Emily, like, did the yeah. did like the discussion of reason vis-a-vis liberalism like strike any chords with you and the way he talked about that? I mean, yeah, I think it was like a much more palatable way to talk about like the kind of work that I do actually that it's like I I don't know to think about liberalism as both relying on and um extending the sort of technocratic regime in both the basic like political sense but also in the kind of broader disciplinary sense I think is a good way a good way to think about why conversations about um you know, like relativism are so scary and taboo or why conversations about like standpoint are so scary and taboo because it completely undermines and upsets um, the, the the regime of technocracy that lets us like say anything or prove anything or do anything and justifies every decision that people ostensibly make in power in our current in under current configuration. So I I thought it was a good way to, a good way to talk about it, but, uh, but I guess I don't know that like, I don't know now that we're talking about all the other ways you could talk about this, that psychoanalysis is like the best way to get at that necessarily, but maybe that is just like one part of the, one part of the whole 
one piece of the whole puzzle or something. But So what would it mean then to like take the psychoanalytic part less seriously? And like, what does, what do we think Renson means by psycho using psychoanalysis as a metaphor? Hmm. And do you think that what he means by that is something different than the way we than the direction we've been taking it? See, I, okay, we should so, probably tweet at him and ask after we finish recording this. <laughs> that, How um, quick do you think he can respond? Hold on. <laughs> I mean, does he know who we are? Like, great question. I, we, I assume we, so. We so. we <laughs> we follow everyone knows who we are. Twitter. Emmett Renson, hi Emmett, if you're listening, will be added uh, when this episode comes. We're gonna blow this article up. I think the uh, the modifier. (laughs) I think it's the other way around. (laughs) I think if he retweets us, it'll blow the podcast up. It's more likely to happen. (laughs) The um, the modifier blathering in front of the superego kind of point to me made it seem like he really like the cycle and like psychoanalysis allows for us to think about certain states of consciousness or certain like malfunctions when all this breaks down and you get this kind of pathology of schizophrenia and other kinds of hysterias and things and so like someone who's blathering like to blather is a kind of mental frenzy state or something. Like you're not quite there, right? You're just blathering at the end of history, as he says here, which almost makes it seem like a super ego is kind of like just broken and like in the corner, just like spouting out the same old five phrases on repeat or something that it's always done. And it just is like, you know, like that. So I thought using the psychoanalysis was an interesting way to kind of point at that too, because he also mentioned the cub. Cub Fei Fei. I've never said that out loud, but, but no one should ever say it out loud. And this whole thing, I really appreciate. Like, I, when I was reading this, um, and he got onto Cub Fei Fei and like pointed that out that on the day, well, it was, like, the, it was that Hillary Clinton tweeted a Cub right. Fei joke the day before the U.S. pulled out of the exactly. Paris climate. And and to me, that whole so like the whole Cub Fei Fei thing to me, and I didn't even have the words to say. I just was feeling it as this was whole thing was going on, that it felt like a kind of nervous tick or a kind of response when there's a really intense like traumatic situation going on, which is this 45 presidency. And then something happens that allows people to kind of distract themselves from the trauma that's actually going on, right? So you get fixated on this little silly joke that shouldn't have been nearly as big of a joke in the Geist as it ended up being for like a week, you know? And yes, I use Geist half ironically on purpose thing because I think we're all, we're all, we're in this Hegelian Freudian mode right now. So... (laughs) You know, like that joke to me, it kind of showed that like this liberal, you know, the technocratic, the the, the, the liberals who laugh at the alt-right and, the, the you know, the Trump supporters as being ignorant and not, you know, like putting everything on a dis, like they just don't have enough knowledge. They're sillier than us. They're not as smart as us. And the Cafefe joke just seemed really cheap a really cheap way to get giggles and laughs from like the liberal high school kid table, you know, that like is really silly. And I'm glad he pointed that out because like the world's literally burning down around us. And yet, you know, the American media for a week was kind of fixated on the most silly, immature thing. Right. So that was to me, that seemed like a very immature, the psyche of American liberalism was immature in finding that joke to be overly joke, you know, but like that makes it, now not the super ego anymore it's a kind of it-ish 
response that just giggles at something silly. So I don't know, you know, we're mixing. Which could be the superego out of control. But maybe thinking about it as superego is useful because we, you hear um, metaphors of like dysfunction and kind of like other words that are associated with like non-normal states being used to describe like our contemporary moment. And maybe to think about it as Mm -hmm. superego rather than as just like individual pathology, for example, right? Like words like that denote an individual pathology and to think of it as superego instead is to diagnose a problem of like relations among communities rather than as like Mm. a deviation from the normal, uh, you know, what's healthy for uh, the, the single body. Right. So to think about it as, as the relationship between members of the society and the norms that society generates the rules it generates for cohabitation and that like that that is the relationship that's creating a kind of like sickness it's not failure to be normal right yeah mm, that's a really really good point so let me take that let me offer he says, like right that like it's not that donald trump was not normal right it's that like this is part endemic to liber- the liberal superego. Well, this is like a really important question for this piece is, is Trump unprecedented, anomalous, a unique catastrophe? I or, think he thinks not, right? Or I'm, I don't think, I, yeah, I think Renson thinks not. So like, this is why, so this is like, I mean, James, you'll recognize this from writing of mine that you had just read that I'm thinking about is like, what counts as something that is like paradigmatic and unprecedented versus a like perpetuation of the normal order. Right. And so let me try this. Let me throw this out there and see what you two think. Like, might we say alongside this piece that like, Trump is the id of, let's just say, like, Americanness or something, right? Mm-hmm. That in his, like, excessive wealth capitalism mode and in his white supremacist mode and in his misogynistic mode and in all, xenophobia and all of those things, right? Like, those are the ids, uh, some of the ids, or maybe even parts of the ego of America, right? And so it's like, so long is those stayed submerged or like in the unconscious or like not explicit or not entirely visible modalities, then liberalism qua superego could run as an effective superego and not be out of control or run down. But it's when those id impulses manifest that have always been there all along and have always already been there. Um, like manifest themselves more presently and explicitly and like in the conscious as opposed to the unconscious vis-a-vis Trump? Like, is that the moment of breakdown of the liberalism qua superego? If, so, okay, this if is, that makes any sense, right? The, and so, yeah, this, so, so like, let me, let me like be no, like so transparent. The I, so the reason I pause is because I think, I think in this article, it's a little bit of both, right? That like, I think that, he wants to say that it was breaking already even back as far as yeah. Bill Clinton and arguably Bill Clinton yeah, is that's the a good moment point. where we can first see it start to crack or something, or it's, the, right, I, it's a uh-huh. first, or it's like the turn that puts it on the path. 
of, of That's breaking a great point. or yeah. something. Yeah. Right. And so then, right. but so with Trump, I think maybe is the place like where the obviousness of its, of its <laughs> failure to make good on its, you know, promise of a superego is most evident or something. I, when you laid that out, John, actually this, I, I thought maybe, well, you know, we're just, we're just throwing a bunch of things out here now. Yeah. Is it's Trump, always already podcast after is, dark. Is Trump the kind of emerging ego out of those id drives of America? And that like, it's even more, cause like the it has always been there, but there's something about Trump that is more conscious than just those id drives. Like he's yeah. made those drives a campaign slogan and, you know, and like that, that is a coming of consciousness in a, a Hegelian politic way, right? But like to, to James move, loves Hegel to so move much. Your, I do. I love him and I hate him. Um, but like, you, man, yeah. Well, that's another thing. But um, <laughs> you, Dad, we need we need an entire podcast uh, devoted to James I love said Hegel. This and and I, always I, already I'm after so, dark. If there's any Lewis and Clark history students listening, come to my office this fall because you will find that Hegel picture floating in the corner above my desk because. Hegel's ghost haunts every hallway of philosophy and, and, and history. And I think history is one of the disciplines that doesn't even realize that they're Hegelian all the time. So that's why I really want to keep beating up on Hegel. Cause like it, at least political theory knows that they're being Hegelian when they invoke him. Right. Like, History doesn't realize that they say things that are just straight out of Hegel's mouth. Emily's so, doing shruggy emoji. So, <laughs> but so maybe Trump is the, the ego, right? Mm. And so the other thing that I was thinking is, as you were laying out what you had just said there, if we want to go back a bit to um, what um, M. Shadi Malaklu had said on the last episode that she was on about, um, and when we were talking about Wilderson's, when Wilderson breaks down, Wilderson, Wilderson, I just, I say that name both ways. I realized after listening to that episode, I said them both ways. But um, anyway, he says that, right? So let's let's be a little bit even more historicist than trying to really piece through this. White supremacy is the irrational drive, right? Capitalism gives a rationality to white supremacy's libidinal id. And so if that, if we're going to run with that kind of Afro-pessimist psychoanalysis, a kind of uh, Fanonian psychoanalysis maybe, then the liberal superego that is, that has emerged, maybe liberalism has, right? Liberalism has always been the superego of white supremacies it drives because or the thing there's that never mediates been a lib- between white supremacy yeah. and capitalism yeah yes because there's never been a you know a liberalism that wasn't always emerging at the same time with white supremacist structures and so i think or, or it's generative kind of. or capitalism yeah. right rationality at the same time so all those things emerge together and in that case liberalism is this interesting because liberalism is the, you know, in a Foucault understanding of liberalism now, right? This is where the governance of self-rational individuals comes into play, right? So that, the you know, all of the liberal, you know, rhetoric about being individual, being self-governing, being rational, being stable, uh, uh, being a good market actor. I mean, those are all super ego functions of this kind of order. Um, 
I think the psychoanalysis is very generative here, actually. I like you know, it. even if it's even if it's like mixing levels at times and like, you know, I, I, I think this who cares? <laughs> yeah, actually, I agree. Not, I totally agree. We're not actually being serious psychoanalysts here. So like I, I like What do you this. mean? And maybe we that's, are always and... very serious psychoanalysts <laughs> here at the Always but, Already like, podcast. May, maybe we finally <laughs> answered a question we haven't answered and like what does it mean to do to use psychoanalysis as metaphor? And maybe it's that freedom to move across multiple levels and take it too seriously or something. I would love to hear what a psychoanalysis, you know, would actually say to us. Saying you could be free to just, you know. I have I have one more question about this piece for you two. Is neoliberalism as a superego different than liberalism as a superego? And neoliberalism not in this piece. Hmm. And if it, we were to put it in this piece, how would we do so? To me, the like managerial technocratic well, part of it, which are words that he uses to describe liberalism, strikes me as like incredibly neoliberal, particularly. Well, I think it's partially due to the fact that he's trying to like a little bit to skewer the Democratic Party, right? Which yes. I think. It's I mean, easier skewer away. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But I think I think that like you know, it's also unclear to, to what extent he really does want to say that like the right or or where the line goes between how far you go to the right or left before you're in it, right? Because it's kind of ambiguous. Like, presumably we get that the far, far ones are squarely there. But, like, is he talking about moderate Republicans when he talks about the the aid of the right? Or would he characterize moderate Republicans as, like, part mm. of the technocratic liberal regime? Yeah, that's a good point. Regime, right? And so I well, at one that, point mm. he says that, like, liberals understand, like, Bernie or Corbyn to be id that must be managed and resisted and suppressed. Right, so presumably some Republicans would fall under that yeah. characterization, right? But but I yeah. think that, like, I, it might also be stri- strategic, right? That, like, li- people recognize liberalism as something that they know and are familiar with, and maybe the, like, extent to which liberalism is, like, colluding with neoliberalism insofar as it's technocratic and all of these other things is, like, not so easy to see because it's hard to measure, right? So you can't, like... <clears throat> so there's, like, this kind of bizarre way where you need the the language of technocracy in order to, like, show and prove that, that like, neoliberalism is, is, you know, I don't know, an outgrowth or a continuation or an expansion or whatever of this kind of liberal liberal technocracy or something. I don't know. That's a really good question, though. That is a good question. Mm. I I don't know if this answers it, but I just want to point out that I like what he says here, um, where he mentions he talking about okay, why, for example, do liberals who routinely insist they support more ambitious progressive programs in their hearts only reject them for uh, for now? Or I'm changing the form of verbs here, rejecting them for now on pragmatic grounds nonetheless oppose any such leftward movement when it becomes a realistic possibility. So this gets a little bit to it. Like, how far do you get yeah. before you get to in territory, right? So then he says, why do they take up that opposition with a special enthusiasm, one that often feels more aggressive and personal than their rejection of their official rivals on the right? The reaction of American liberals to even the moderate left candidacy of Bernie Sanders reached its apex, not in any argument about policy, 
but in Hillary Clinton declaring that single-payer health care was, quote, never, ever going to happen. And, and that's an interesting, again, because now the problem becomes that, like, the movement through time has ceased, right? Like, there was no futurity in Hillary's opposition to single-payer health care other than just, like, it's not pragmatic, it won't happen. But I think in and that so, case, it's also uniquely American, too, in this kind of almost mm. ahistorical, like, relying on American exceptionalist manifest destiny thing. That, like, right, because, like, it <clears throat> has happened in other <clears throat> so-called, li- right? So this is what's interesting. It does liberalism <clears throat> stretch to include the kind of John Stuart Mill liberals that become our, like, social Democrats down the road? Like, is he talking about all of them? Or does he mean the specific American liberal, which would not be recognized as a liberal in European Almost politics? anywhere else, yeah. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, like, in So I, because, yeah, then he friends right, bringing in Britain as a, that's, you know, but again, we're going to let, we're going to be creative and poetic and just, like, apply. So we'll let him float between different registers of liberalism too maybe i don't know um i mean definitely when you those questions that you read james like my marginal note there was that that was the place where the super ego metaphor worked the best or like had the most explanatory right because it wasn't even a that argument of just like it's it's this so like in, in some way it's the kind of like the the like who in the right would also be considered in this kind of liberal like in some way some of the people on the right like some of the and i, I may be right it's not even a good word some of the republican establishment was trying to super ego their own alt-right fringe elements too right and they were not nearly as good at it but like you know paul ryan danced the really i think he's shameful personally but but during the election when he said things it's like... It's a half hour up the road from me. You, oh, Call Ryan's house. You know, he had a shred of a hope, of a glimmer of maybe having some political character when he no. was like... No, when Trump never. Called me, Not when once. Trump, when Trump Not called ever. the judge, the Mexican judge, whatever, and he, he called that textbook racism, right? And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, if that's textbook racism, then... Whatever. What are you doing? So that was a very weak super ego move, but like there was a there was a slight super ego like gesturing there in that he was trying to kind of correct the right that was just so far 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 down the other end of the id that like I'm not saying that he was you're again right I think he's shameful but I think it would have been political suicide for him to step his neck out really far and say hey you far right crazies stop it and you know that's what he wanted to do but just politically Did couldn't, didn't i think the decorum of the times right the super ego decorum of 2016 sure. okay. says right. that no republican is allowed to speak like that in public anymore so right even you if only he can agree, do yeah, colorblind racism right. you can't this, do racism this isn't yeah. actually changing your drives right this is just them down in an acceptable social way right so the super ego Adhering function on the, to right the rules. Was not Right. You know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't stamping it out. It was just trying to, like, get back in line with the rest of us who, like, delicately managed to look like we're not assholes every day. And just the, everything falling out of our mouths. I mean, you know, so I don't know. Like, I think there's something to be said about, like, maybe the liberal, like the left liberals or like the Democrat liberals are more smarmy about their, like, moral corrections i think like when they issue like we go high when they go low Mm. type stuff i know people love that like it makes them feel like they have an upper high ground but like 
that whole I don't like that idea, right? Like I think that's what this is getting at. This we go high when they go low is like I'm more mature than the silly three year old who taunts me, so I'm not even gonna engage them, right? And like put deeming all political opposition as just immature and like not even worth engaging, you know. And I, again, it's not to say that there isn't a kind of to to bring Trump's like the, the kind of maybe ego work that Trump did to the white supremacist, misogynist, id or something is to, like I don't think those are ideas that need to be brought into mainstream political discourse either, right? And like I don't like giving Trump a platform and making him more important in the election, you know, I, I see the point of trying to like ignore the dummy in the corner of the room. But like that isn't working, right? I guess that's the point of this piece. It's like, it's not just the fringe side anymore that like we're no longer in the time where you could just like, your five-year-old that you could just stare at and slap their hand or something is no longer, right? Like it, you can't do that anymore. And like, if you, this is maybe like in some case, right? We're going to just mix everything. There's some kind of, this right, alt-right id has now ego developed and has become like a fucking 25-year-old or you know, like a 17-year-old screaming in the house all the time, doing whatever it wants, right? And like that, like super ego parent that's just kind of like, no, don't do that because I said so. Like that doesn't work anymore, and you actually have to engage this kind of politics. The one thing that I want to say to you both and ask you this maybe is, what do you think about the fact that he doesn't actually give us a way out of this conundrum or something? Mm. Right? Like he just he identifies it and then walks away from it. So what are we supposed to do now that the political landscape has changed and like the Trump ego people are like actually like we need to like you can't fact check them because that's not going to work. But you have to do something. Right. And so what do we do when you're dealing with post-truth? I, I think we kind of talked about this a bit in our election special after dark where it just was Let's like, what do we get that ever happened? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do we do? Why? <laughs> Forget our was, the election. That was. That Forget was very super ego of me. Election <laughs> Did we not like that podcast? No. <laughs> or we just want to forget that day. Oh, that day. Okay. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Because it's one thing to point out how liberalism is like a one-trick pony movie and that it's no longer like the, the time when that kind of chiding correction could work as like let the smart people in the room handle things like we we that has shattered right so then what is the new what is the after politics or like this is the where i think arthur danto is interesting to think about this kind of thing because even though he writes about the end of art occurring in the 60s that doesn't mean art stopped right it just means that we've entered a post-art phase where it's like art is no longer doing the function of developing self-consciousness that Hegel thought it was going to do. But guess what? Like, we have to keep living, and history keeps, you know, time keeps being experienced as moving forward or something, right? And so what is the new political paradigm if fact-checking your lying political opposition is no longer going to work? Then mm -hmm. all, Because liberalism is just, like, the maybe the ethos of the structure of our democratic political orders right so like we still have the mechanisms of a liberal mentality or way of being so we're kind of screwed right like i'm stuck with a liberal political democratic system but like we're not actually the content of the system is no longer 
like liberal in that sense that like I can't just go knock on a Trump supporter's door and like discourse with them over 20 minutes and like see them move in their position and arrive at a new synthesis. Like it's well, but also like presumably, presumably you would have to concede that both of you would move in your position, right? If we're, if we're stepping away from the paradigm of the smart guy in the room makes the decisions, then you have to like open yourself to the fact that if you engage in that dialogue, both, both parties are moving in some, some way. Right. Which is like, I don't know that we want to say that. Like, do we? (laughs) Right. Yeah. See that. So then you're like stuck again. Yeah. Um, I think the answer is more critical theory podcasting, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) It's like the onion article about the Trump voter or the onion video of the Trump voter who read 800 pages of queer feminist theory. I loved that video so much. I watched it like a hundred times. I didn't see this. Wait, what is this? Onion did a video. We're going to, you have to go watch it as soon as we hang out. James. Um, I think that the answer, we should also include it in the episode post. (laughs) We could. Yeah, I think we should. Um, I think that the answer for Renson is maybe like Marxist class-based politics for the 21st century, right? Because he contrasts um, the like liberal superego anti-political notion of politics to the Marxist notion of politics. Mm-hmm. He later on talks about how what actually explains the thing that liberalism can explain and i can find it in a second is class power right so he uses that language you know he's critical he like taught is critical of the democratic party for understanding um climate change not as about capitalism but just about like uh you know yeah just about science and managing things better so like i so like i think that the that the implicit alternative of this piece is marxism right a robust critique of capitalism something like that a political a political response to it or something yeah yeah yeah, oh yeah i'm down for that i just want again and it's not the kind of article like (laughs) like it's not fair maybe to ask all these questions of a, a blog article style that he wrote you know it's not like an actual published article but i'm curious now because i'm willing to say yes marxism a robust rigorous marxism is a kind of other way but then we still have the problems of like the ghost of hegel that shows up in marx all the time and the the problem of the wilderson yes exactly take on civil society and marxism and so i you know i like the the pivoting to we need to be more redistributionists and like we need to talk about class struggle but that the dialectical problem or dialect, the dialectic as like, I'm going to fact check you. You're right. I'm wrong. Let's talk about it. We'll meet in the middle or classes struggle. I mean, like, I'm just, I'm worried that the dialectic is also a part of this Freudian Hegelian development theory. That's so, it's not incidental to that theory, right? Like it's not. Absolutely. And so I'm not, I'm not sure if just a, a pivoting to class and power conversations if it's not intersectional right like i feel like we just keep saying the same kinds of things we've closed we closed that last <laughs> talk with emily saying that we need to return to like black feminist intersectionality or just right? thinking and, about like, the possibility of it i don't know, you know yeah. like, like once again if that's a good marxism, answer though if we're, if we're gonna go down the marxism road then okay but like let's do it intersectionally 
That's a good answer. Because <laughs> then otherwise we'll be right back again in another kind of problem where, you know, we still have the mis- I think the misogyny and the white supremacy probably still lives in the id of oh, Marxism. Ab- I was about right? to so, say the exact same thing. So you need to, like, that is the problem. And, like, maybe there is no getting rid of the... Like, that's the other thing with the psychoanalysis that is interesting in that there is no end of the struggle of, <laughs> like, putting the id down either, right? Like, you don't deal with... You deal with the id until you die. Or, or you just give into it and you, like you give into your excesses and your pleasures all the time. But like the, I don't know what I'm saying here, but like that is not a, there's no, there's no. Hashtag AAP after that. I know. But like, we're never going to get to a point where we like politically defeat the seeds of racism and homophobia and misogyny and all those, right. All of, I don't think we're ever going to get to like, the way some liberals maybe thought, like, we've passed the Civil Rights Act, we've passed the Equal Rights Protection Act, we've got, you know, we've got gay marriage passed now. So, like, we've managed any other, it. Any other box on the identity politics, yeah. you know, the check off, and now we've got everyone's rights, and now we just got to, like, ride in, buckle in. We've gotten here. I don't think we're ever going to get there. And so, to that extent, even Marxism is never going to, there is no utopia at the end of Marxism either. And if there is, then we're back to that end of whatever formulation that is not that's not a healthy way to think about are we also at oh i wonder oh my god what if he yeah sorry we are at the end of this episode but what do you think do you think he would say the same (laughs) about about um we're just gonna blather on until he about like oh no we are the blathering (laughs) in the soviet union or something in what way that like you could say that once this once like communist soviet uh, russia saw itself as the end of history it ceased to mm. like continue to be super ego in the way that like made it like that it never coalesced like one way to explain its failure is as, as super ego wow that's yes. really interesting yeah that's great that just opens up another interesting <laughs> This is thoughts for people maybe to chew on after we conclude. But uh, what does it say then that like Russia and Trump's administration are these aligning kids or superegos then at the end of time that like that like the liberal superego and the Marxist superego as they like had their trajectories through historical material at political formations that are maybe not perfectly ideal in those theories. But both like you could say Russia and the United States become these two like historic political formations that are a the best air quotes, right? Like metaphors for these two so-called or construed oppositional ways of thinking. And they both collapse for the same reason that like they reach the end and they don't know what to do when the sun rises the next day again. And so then like we're living in this post-communist, post-capitalist, post-everything world. And now the, the Earth's going to burn. So we should just sit back and like, enjoy ourselves. A <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, it's something we only got another... <laughs> Kind of hundred years like, before it's too hot to live it's very, in. Yeah, there's like so. something very poetic about the whole like chaos right now though. It is there's like these weird <laughs> like sick. poetic moments in it that's like hmm, like this is interesting. Shark high in the contradictions. Yeah. Um poems are bad. Or what that also makes me think about is like is there something inherent to governmental institutional power that like makes the superego go out of control? Or maybe it's the idea that 
I'm sorry, I keep asking questions. I know we've tried to like exit the the, the episode. The only other thing is there something about the the super ego that makes it impossible to end a podcast? Oh. Well, okay, you have to have some kind of promise. This is okay. We have to like, you have to tease out, right? There has. To, I was gonna say, but cruel optimism, right? Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism and Munoz's <laughs> cruising utopia is a like, especially cruising utopia, because I've been reading this recently. So like, I'm gonna just. This is where these thoughts are coming from. He's like trying to revitalize Hegel through a reading of Locke and like critical hope as a practice that is necessary. And so maybe. The linear trajectory of history is like get rid of that idea. Absolutely, not the even end, need, right? Like, just you know, definitely, yes, definitely. But there still needs to be some futurity. Now, how we get there is not a linear trajectory, but there still has to be some like promise of something coming. Otherwise, the movement of all these, whether they're dialectical or dialogical movements, or whatever. But like, there is no movement if there is no future, right? And so when Hillary says things like that's not going to happen. Like she gave you no futurity at all, other than like, I'm going to manage everything just as it is right now, right? And like, that is death. That's political death. There's no future, right? You can, we talked about this with the queer Edelman's queer theory, right? End of death, like no children is death. And that's like, I mean, all these things kind of rolling together, I think. So we need a future. So we have to end this episode so that people can come back. Okay, so here's my promise. Here's, here's, excellent tie-up. Here's James. my future. I was like, pitch, is it gonna then. happen? Is it gonna happen? There, there's gonna be a few. There'll be a future. Always already after dark. That is, uh, two fifths. Uh, two fifths Twilight. Two fifths why James loves Hegel so much, and one fifth psychoanalytic account of the Always Already podcast. I think Hegel's in my super ego. So stay tuned for <laughs> like eight months from now, you can check that episode out. Do I have a question eight for you two? Do we all, I think like that's our, no, our November, no, November to June is like seven months. That was our last after dark. True. Um, do we want to invite listeners to suggest always already podcast after dark top topics? Yeah, why not? That would be fun. I feel like that might even. It takes us less time to prepare for those, so we can do them a little more yeah. off the cuff. You're more likely for that to actually happen. That's well, we don't have to actually read closely. Hey, we, we, clo- I, we close read this piece. We yeah. actually, yes, we did. We, we close read the shit out of this analyzed. piece. Yeah, probably more than anyone in the comment section that Emily pointed out. It was short uh, and lovely. <laughs> can I just throw in one quick plug? I don't know if I said this when we were recording or not, but all of my thoughts on um, Freudian psychoanalysis having a historicity to it and like it actually could maybe open up into an actual historic, a historicist account of something too, comes from Dr. Tomoko Masuzawa, who is at the University of Michigan, and she does work in religious studies around the phallic totemic. Uh, work that Freud did, and uh, it's a really interesting creative read. We can link that, to them in the episode. Yeah, I, well, I, I was looking to see if she published on it anywhere, and I don't think so. But she gave a key, nothing that she published gestures that like it would have this information in it. But she gave a talk at a religious studies conference at Brown that I was at last year, the keynote that was about the his. Someone asked a question where she pointed out that Freud does have this historicity that allows for it to not only be an ahistoric universalist account but can be historicized and so i it was just very provocative to me and i've never heard anyone try to like actually recuperate freud 
but she was doing a really good job. So cool. There's that. Awesome. Great. Uh, stay tuned. There, there are credits where we plug ourselves and our various things and dimensions. Um, anything else from you two? No, I'm my super uh, ego and a... it and ego are tired. So we we have an episode. All three of us really need to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> the next episode of Reallyness is about transracialism. We're going there. We're going there. Oh shit. <laughs> all right you're gonna get us some angry tweets james Pallion jr <laughs> can't wait you gotta respond to all of them that's right well when we get when we get added on twitter like you are to respond <laughs> james that's my that's personally my <laughs> no i'm looking forward, looking forward to that conversation so uh yeah thanks for listening folks thank you thank you Thank you for listening to our blathering superheroes <laughs> at the end of the night. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Oi Early Podcast, which is created by Rachel Brown, B. Altman, Emily Crandall, James Padalini Jr., and John McMahon. Visit our website, oliverlypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, dreams to analyze, and other topics you'd like to hear about to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed, and leave us a good review wherever you listen to the show. Thank you, as always, to our patrons of the Always Already podcast in the Circle of Trust. We thank Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada category, we thank Dana. In the Friend of the Podcast category, we thank Steve and Angel. And people who haven't claimed a reward, but we're very grateful for their support nonetheless, are Bunny, Matthew, and Laika. You are listening to B, cover landslide right now. And our intro music is Static Loops by Leah Dion. Thanks for listening, and have an always already day. Wake up, James! Go home, you're drunk! <laughs> <laughs>